This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Most of us now have a sense that a small number of big companies are making money out of our information and that maybe worse than that, they're selling information about us to people we'd rather not have it. Well, Professor Sarah Lambden has gone much further than having that general sense of unease. Uh, She's written a book about it, Data Cartels, the Companies that Control and Monopolise Our Information. Welcome to you, Professor. Thank you for having me. And now then, you start this book with a story about how you got into this, you know, why this issue came on your radar as it were why not just tell us what happened yeah um so unlike a lot of people who write about tech and data problems i'm not from the tech industry i'm actually a librarian and i was working as a law librarian at city university new york and my job was largely filled by teaching people how to use the two major legal research platforms in the united states Westlaw and Lexis. Um, I even used to joke that I felt sometimes more like a product rep than a librarian um, in my role. And in 2017, kind of at the height of ICE stories about ICE being immigration and customs enforcement in the United States, sorry, being um, kind of egregiously human rights violating in really horrific ways. There were there were stories about children being kept in cages and families being separated at the border. So in the midst of all of that, I got an article that said that there were a bunch of companies vying to help ICE build a big invasive data surveillance program. And among the people listed as attendees were um, representatives from LexisNexis and Thomson Reuters, which are the parent companies for Lexis and Westlaw's legal products that I felt like a glorified product rep for. Uh, so I became concerned uh, that my legal research work might somehow interlap with ICE surveillance. I didn't quite understand what Lexis and Westlaw would be doing with ICE to help them build a surveillance program. So a colleague and I wrote a blog post. We did the most innocuous thing possible. We wrote a blog post for the American Association of Law Libraries. And we we, we just wanted to alert our fellow law librarians about this issue and see if anybody had any, you know, concerns about it. So we wanted to see, you know, what our colleagues thought about, you know, this news article. And we posted the blog post online. And within two minutes, the American Association of Law Libraries, our professional organization, pulled down that 
blog post. They took it offline and replaced it with one sentence. And that sentence was removed at the advice of legal counsel. And my colleague and I were really surprised because um, librarians aren't in the habit of censorship. Uh, we are actually, you know, by our ethical kind of principles against censorship. So we were confused about why we were being censored. And that move by the AALL made me all the more curious. So I started researching what LexisNexis and Thomson Reuters were doing with ICE. And I learned that not only are these companies huge information providers, kind of leg legacy publishers, they've also gotten very deep into data analytics work, including predictive policing and immigration surveillance. And that really concerned me as a law librarian because it seemed dangerous and it seemed to violate kind of principles of intellectual freedom and privacy to combine research services with surveillance systems. So I began doing more and more research to try to figure out what the structure of these companies was and what they're doing. And the more I figured out, the more concerned I became, which led me to write the book Data Cartel. Right. And, and, and exactly. And the, the book sort of lays out the landscape of this. And I'd like you to, to do that for us, too. So let's just start with some very basics, just assuming people don't know a lot about this. Data analytics, and we'll get into more detail later, but data analytics is basically linking information, get, getting lots of data points on an individual, which gives you the power to know the sort of things they might want to buy and even the sort of ways they might behave. Yes. Yes. So data analytics, I mean, there are all sorts of things that are data analytics, but the most kind of lucrative and popular form of data analytics right now involves taking our personal data and kind of combining it with other information and data points in order to make predictions and prescriptions about what we might do. And like you said, it can be anything from what we might be interested in buying, you know, to help advertisers. There's a whole ad tech industry that's pretty, you know, focused solely on getting us to buy certain things and to see certain ads. Um, and then there's also predictive analytics that are sold to um, law enforcement, insurance companies, employers, healthcare systems. And these types of analytics predict how risky we are. Uh, they're called, I, I call them risk, risk-based analytics or risk analytics, and they kind of rank us by how likely we might be to commit a crime, to default on a loan, to suffer some sort of um, health, you know, health effect that might affect our healthcare insurance, and, and just really take our personal data and other, you know, scientific and legal data and information and guess at the kind of things we might do next. So tell us, who are the big players in selling this kind of information? So there are, I mean, there are a lot of data brokers out there. Data brokering is a multi-billion dollar industry. And there are two, I think, of two major kind of spheres of data brokering. There's commercial data brokering, which sells and kind of deals in our data in order to affect commerce, you know, help Walmart decide who its customer base is and what they might be interested in buying or, you know, help um, Google 
our Amazon or, you know, other platforms that we spend a lot of time on target ads towards us um, and give, give that data over. And then there's this other sphere that sells our data to law enforcement to do predictive policing that sells um, to insurance companies, you know, the, kind of the former categories I was talking about. And some of the biggest players in that sphere are LexisNexis and Thomson Reuters. They're not the only ones, you know, there's also Experian, Oracle, and, and there's a slew of them. But LexisNexis and Thomson Reuters both own pieces of this legacy data analytics company called ChoicePoint, which was one of the first major law enforcement data analytics companies out there. And they are especially active in, at least in the United States, in um, selling data to the government, selling data to law enforcement, selling data to our insurance companies, uh, tenant screening companies, et cetera. And all of those products are risk assessment or you know risk prediction products. Okay. And then there's another category of information. You've been talking about this sort of data analytics that gives you predictive power, but there's something else which is you call walled gardens. And we'll get into the different types of information that are in these walled gardens. But first of all, how would you just briefly define the walled garden? One thing I, I, I explain in the book a bit is that most data analytics companies and most information companies specialize in a particular type of information. So like Bloomberg LP specializes in financial information and, you know, BBC or CNN specialize in news information. But companies like LexisNexis and Thomson Reuters sell data and data analytics products. And they also have all of these walled garden information troves that they, that they, sell access to. So Reed Elsevier LexisNexis is also Elsevier, which is the largest academic information and academic journal company. And Lexis and Westlaw are the premier um, legal information companies. And so not only do they sell data analytics, these companies, they also sell access to all of the United States legal information. And um, all of, you know, all of Elsevier's content. Um, they both have huge news services. LexisNexis has one of the largest news archives in the world, um, according to their advertising. And um, Thomson Reuters also has Reuters news service, right? So they also can own and control and kind of put that information in quote unquote walled gardens. So in kind of the digital world, people have given the name walled gardens to platforms and systems that you can only enter by logging into or having some sort of special passwords to get past the wall and enter the, you know, that garden of content or information. And Thomson Reuters and LexisNexis have very large troves of informational content that they wall off from the public unless you can get a subscription. Right. And, and exactly. And the password that will give you access, you might need to, to pay for, yeah, you might need to pay for a subscription. But what's, but what's wrong with this? I mean, if, if you take academic articles, uh, you know, someone's got to edit them, someone's got to publish them, and then they've got rights over them, and they put them all together and make them easily accessible and sell access. Why is that a problem? That's a great question. And you're right. One thing I'm very clear about in the book, and when I talk about this is publishing is expensive. It's not free, right? Like books don't magically make themselves. Journals don't magically go through peer review without, you know, a lot of effort. So 
who bears the cost of publishing is a really important question. And, you know, if Elsevier is publishing hundreds of academic journals, they, you know, should reap some financial reward for that. Absolutely. But one of the problems with, there are a few problems with the walled garden system, especially in academic journals as it exists today. I mean, one is that the, <laughs> the people who do the work of editing and publishing and writing the journal are, journal articles aren't the same group of people who are getting the economic benefits from it. And also, I think from the perspective of, you know, data cartels, one of the problems is, is that when you log into the walled garden or interact with the walled garden system, either as a author, editor, whatever, these companies, because they also do data brokering and data analytics work, collect all of your data. So when you have a personalized password to enter, you know, a platform, uh, whether it be Westlaw or, you know, Springer Science Direct or what have you, once once you type in your password or, or identify yourself as somebody who can pass through the walled garden, you're also identifying yourself with a whole set of, of data, you know, whatever data they have on you um, that you had to give them during sign up or maybe that your institution handed over in order to make you a password. Now, once you're inside of the garden, the wall garden, whoever owns that system will be following you and tracking you as you make choices, seeing what you click on, seeing what journal articles you interact with. And if you're an author or editor, where where you do a lot of your work, what articles you've participated in, who you work with, what institution you work at, you know, you, your name might be associated with all sorts of other personal information as well, your address, your phone number, your gender, your age, etc. Now, I can see that. But the point is, everyone's doing that, isn't it? I mean, if, if, if you, you know, went onto some site to buy a bit of garden furniture, all that would be happening. And also, surely all companies rip off their employees. You know, I mean, you say that you know, you say that it's unusual for yeah. You say it's not fair for the person who's doing the editing doesn't get the money. But I mean, that's like everything. I mean, uh, lots of companies don't reward people according to their just desserts. So it seems to me in these two respects that people like Elsevier aren't doing anything that nobody else is doing, really. In some sense, yes, right. But one thing about what you know, especially let's, if we focus on Reed Elsevier LexisNexis and their Elsevier products, for example. So Reed Elsevier LexisNexis isn't just collecting your data and selling it to advertisers or, you know, selling it as a data brokering company. They also are building data analytics products called impact factor scores or academic metrics that rank you as an academic. Um, So not only... You know, it's one thing if you're on, you know, Amazon or on another shopping platform and that platform is collecting data about what you've clicked on and, you know, doing it, selling that to advertisers. It's another thing to be interacting with uh, Read Elsevier LexisNexis platform and to have that system selling rankings of you to your potential academic employers, to your grant funders and making you know, helping entities make major decisions about your career based on whatever it is you are doing on the platform, however it is you're interacting with Elsevier, etc. Yeah, take the point. And and in, in other areas, so we've talked about the academic articles a bit. Can you just, because you have chapters on this academic area, then legal information, financial information, news information. So let's just run through those one by one. Legal information, what are the issues there? Yeah, so legal information, there are a couple of major issues that I point out. 
The first is that legal information is created by public entities for the public. It is public information. The Supreme Court has said as much by affirming something called the government edicts doctrine that says that the law belongs to all of us and should be accessible to all of us. And yet, Thomson Reuters and Reed Elsevier LexisNexis through their subsidiaries, Lexis and um, Westlaw, have put all of our legal information in walled garden systems that are really expensive and that most people can't afford to access. So you might be able to get an outdated or unclear you know, version of the law for free online, but in order to get the annotated, clear, you know, most recently updated, easy to search version, you have to be able to log on to Westlaw and Lexis. And that's a major information access problem. And then um, this, the companies are also beginning to delve into something they call litigation analytics. So they're taking information from case law, personal information about, you know, lawyers, judges, news, what have you, and, and other information from their other, you know, information products and melding it all together to help lawyers who can afford to buy their lit- litigation analytics kind of game the legal system by knowing what language a judge will prefer, knowing what cases will be the most the most positively received by which judges, and really making predictions and prescriptions about how to maneuver as a lawyer or as a participant in, you know, the U.S law and policy system in a way that will be the most beneficial to you based on um, your ability to buy these litigation analytics. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just wondering again, is that like, you know, being able to afford a good lawyer? And, and it's, it's, it, that's not fair. Never has been. But that's that's part of the system, too, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And that's I mean, that's the thing. I think it's for us as you know, a society or as a, as a group to decide what we think is okay and what we think the line should be around, you know, kind of an equal playing field in the law, an equal playing field in information access, et cetera. But these companies aren't, we aren't, since we're not discussing it in the public, we aren't even able to be aware that these things are happening so we can make those choices, right? One thing I'm really careful about is not to tell society <laughs> what I think, you know, what I think the end solution should be, because I really do think that right now it's just an issue of spreading awareness that these things are happening um, and raising raising concerns that some of these things might not be how we intend the um, legal system to work or how we intend, you know, ac- the academic and knowledge enterprise systems to work. So, yeah, I, I do agree that you know, litigation analytics might not be that far off from being able to, you know, pay for the top law firm in the nation or whatever. But the top law firm in the nation shouldn't be able to use data analytics to game the legal system unless we all are on the same page about knowing that that's happening and agreeing that that kind of, you know, inequality in access to justice is something that we're all consenting to or aware of at least yeah i mean at the very least there are potential public policy implications aren't there so as you say everyone should know about it Uh, what about financial information who's doing that what are they doing what are the points of concern there financial information is 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 interesting because it's (laughs) i think to most of us who aren't super deep into the world of like 
trading and stock markets and all of those things, a lot of it is very opaque um, and unfamiliar to us. Like we hear, I know when I hear, you know, kind of finance talk, like the, the, the circus music in my head goes, goes on and I just can't even really understand what, you know, what people are talking about. And I think that's true for a lot of us. And I think some of that opaqueness is purpose you know, it's on purpose, kind of like I compare it to kind of how the rules of tennis were created specifically so that the general public couldn't understand them. You know, they, they're kind of a rarefied, specialized, like almost secret language for, you know, the elite. Um, and, and the financial world's kind of similar. If you can afford to play, you might understand the rules or you might be able to pay somebody who can afford or who can uh, understand the rules on your behalf and manage your money for you. Um, and the systems that they use that are have become digital systems, right? And those digital systems are owned by a few companies or run by a few companies. They're their own walled garden of financial information. Um, in the U.S., a lot of it is uh, Bloomberg LP. And until recently, it was Thomson Reuters Refinitiv. And there are just a few companies that do a lot of financial data analytics where they make predictions about how markets are going to behave and what, you know, suggest what to invest in and maybe what to divest from. And so those systems are owned by just a couple companies. And that means that if you can afford Bloomberg terminals or afford, you know, Refinitiv subscription, you can get access to predictions about finance and suggestions about what to do with your investments and money that most people cannot afford to access and, and receive. So that puts you at a financial advantage. And we see that, you know, we see that all the time. And then you also have to wonder uh, how accurate if, because we see across, you know, the other sections of the book, finance, data analytics are very imperfect, right? The data sets are imperfect and erroneous and biased, and so are the algorithms. And, uh, you know, logic says that financial data analytics are probably not magically more accurate, but I, I suspect that they drive so much of the secret world, you know, the, the people who can afford to log into these systems and, and own access to these systems rely so heavily on these data analytics that they move markets, whether or not they are accurate. So they become accurate through, you know, the actions of those who receive them, which is kind of an interesting way to uh, move our financial markets and, and, and make decisions about how our stock market, our, you know, our, our, what we invest in um, and, and what succeeds kind of work. And, and, and then news information. You talk about news information. Having worked at the BBC uh, for many, many years, I was interested in this. What, what, what's your anxiety there? Yeah, I think so. In a way, I, I almost it's funny. I, I debated whether to include this news section or not, because I do I do respect and understand that it's its own story that's being told in so many different ways. Um, news information is so critical and so unique and so important for society that we've kind of all watched it change and collapse in real time over the last you know, few decades. We've seen newspapers fold. We've seen um, you know, televised news kind of become centralized in a few like international kind of generic, like kind of almost the big box stores of news, you know, and go, go from being diversified local sources to being just a couple of huge funnels of news information. 
And we've also seen news become, you know, paywalled and, and be put on walled garden platforms where, you know, sometimes if you need to know something important and you click, you know, you click to read the article, you can't, you can't even see the information because you, you, you are not one of the people who's allowed in. Um, so I think we've all seen this happen and, and there's so much talk about how lack of, of news leads to a lot of, you know, disinformation. And I think we've seen that happen in real time too. Uh, and there's also a lot of, um, I guess there are a lot of studies showing that more and more people are getting their news primarily from social media, which is a venue that we can all, you know, access free of charge. And it's just kind of a fire hose of well-vetted news sources, but also a lot of conspiracy theories, misinformation, incorrect information. Yeah. But I must say, I thought this was the least convincing bit because, you know, it it is expensive to gather news. It is expensive to distribute it. Uh, there is free information out there, and some of it's reliable. And the 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 difficulty is uh, in the post truth world that people, you know, believe disinformation because uh, then you know well there are lots of reasons why, and it's a complicated subject, and it's very interesting as to why they might believe this stuff, but they do. And and it's not you know if if, if organisations are not being paid to or making money out of this, there won't be any information except presumably government information, which would be even worse. Yeah, yeah, and I it's interesting because my first response was like, oh, well, we need, you know, nationalized systems to ensure that this information is accessible. And then, you know, after five minutes of reading what happens in a lot of nations when there's only nationalized news, I'm like, nope, we definitely don't want that. <laughs> yeah, independent news is critically important. Um, you don't want your news to be under the thumb of whatever political, you know, forces are controlling the government at any given time. So yeah, I totally agree with you. And honestly, the main reason I left that in is because it, I, I I know this book is very U U.S. centric, but in the United States and I think, you know, in in the UK and in other countries, too, we see how when governments don't don't build nationalized news system, but provide funding and support for independent news sources, you know, like the BBC, like in America, the public broadcasting system and national public radio, those systems seem to do a good job of supporting an information infrastructure that remains independent, but also has sustained funding and sustained infrastructure, right? So I kind of, the reason I put that chapter last is because I I wanted to use thinking about those types of systems as a pivot point to thinking about how to build digital information infrastructure that is that's sustainable and continuous, because I think that that's the challenge, right? Like you said, it's so expensive to create quality, you know, high quality, sustainable journalism. And it's so expensive to have peer reviewed scientific studies, you know, and, and have well curated and organized legal information that's up to date, somebody needs to pay for it, right? And I'm not saying that it shouldn't be, you know, Elsevier or Westlaw or, you know, whatever, other, you know, for-profit enterprises are doing this business, there just should also be guaranteed, you know, public access, whether whether that's subsidized by, you know, the government or some sort of other kind of deep well of sustained funding. And I think that that's kind of part of what we're missing now. And I, I don't know, I mean, you know more than I do uh, coming from the world of, you know, news media, but I, I feel like some of the reason that our our news services have been, you know, dwindling is because we we now in a digital in the digital world lack that kind of sustained infrastructure funding and support. No, it's interesting. So basically, what you're saying is, I hadn't thought of it like this. That you know, if you go to Europe, healthcare is universally available, but through a system where there are private 
providers of healthcare, but if you can't afford it, you'll get a government subsidy to help you with the insurance premium. So you're getting access and you're basically saying information, legal, academic, financial news is so important that you should maybe allow these private companies to produce this material and to sell it. But if someone can't afford it and it's, you know, in public policy terms, important that they should be able to afford it, maybe subsidize their subscription. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Create an open access option so that everybody has access. And that might be through, you know, yeah, I don't I don't prescribe a particular model. But to go to what you're saying, yeah, some sort of, you know, that that's one option, some sort of subsidy or some sort of, you know, just open access infrastructure that runs alongside, you know, serve these other services without diminishing them necessarily. And also, so another thing I think that would also be positive for is it would give you the option of being able to look at this information without having your data collected. Because if the infrastructure is open, then the some of the incentive to, you know, or ability to collect and monetize data um, might also uh, not be quite as high. Now, one of the things I, I learned from your book is, is you know, we also realize, I think, that the companies doing this are big companies yeah, that, that are putting this information together and selling it. And there is a reason for that. And the reason is that big data is more effective than little data. So if you run a corner store and gather all the information, it's not a lot of use until you put it together you know, on your customers, let's say. It's, it's not much use until you put it together with all the other corner stores in, in the country. And then you get something really useful. Yeah, exactly. It it really is. And that's why these, like you said, that's why these companies are so large. And that's why the large companies are the, the most successful and, and kind of steer towards monopoly. So one of the differences between like, informational assets and information as you know, if you think of data or information as like a commodity or like fuel for the internet, um, the way it's different than other types of fuel like oil, water, etc, is those types of those types of fuel or those types of resources are fungible. So you can exchange, you know, you can exchange one bucket of water for another and it's still water and it'll still serve the same purpose. But all information and data points are unique, right? Like, if you want to learn more about COVID and you ask me for an article about COVID and I give you an article about influenza, that's not going to help you because um, the information is, is different. I can't replace, you know, it's not like a bucket of water. I can't replace one for another. So the more information, the more unique bits of information any one company can gather, the more powerful, better leveraged, stronger that company is, right? So at the end of the day, the company with the most information wins. And right now, some of the companies with the most information include like Relic, Thomson Reuters, and a few of these other information companies that have been collecting information for, I mean, really for over a century. Elsevier, as an academic journal company, is the oldest journal company in the world. Elsevier, who was, you know, the the, the namesake of the company, I, I think he published like Galileo's, you know, <laughs> scientific reports um, and findings. So I, I think that these companies have a real leg up in how many pieces of information they already have, which give them an automatic edge in these systems. Right. I, I, I take the point this has been going on a long time, but the, the, the new bit is this data analytics, isn't it? And it's this ability to gather data points on an individual and do things that have not been possible to do before in terms of 
predicting behaviour, basically, whether it's commercial or of interest to governments. And, and, and that's the bit that many people would think should be regulated. And I, I think I'm right in saying it's pretty much totally unregulated at the moment, partly because it's also new, right? Yes. Yeah, it is. It's it's very it's I mean, I would say it's pretty much completely unregulated. I never like to be an absolutist and especially being a lawyer. The answer is always it depends. <laughs> but yeah, there there there's a real lack of um, of oversight, regulation, transparency requirements for data brokering and personal data use right now. And I think in part, yeah, it is because, you know, we were really only allowed or only able, sorry, to use data this way in kind of this this modern connected internet system world, which is fairly new, right? Like we now are able to collect data from our thermostats and our watches and, you know, our our phones that we carry with us magically everywhere that aren't attached to the wall anymore. And all of this has really exploded, you know, in the last 20 years. So it's new. But also, I think that the other reason we have not been able to regulate or have not been so keen on regulating is because the companies that run these systems have convinced lawmakers that they're kind of above regulation or they're unregulable, right? They're too, they're too complex and it's too um, fast moving or they're doing too much good in the world. Their work is too important to be bogged down by kind of the red tape of bureaucracy and regulation. And they have, you know, they, they put millions of dollars into lobbying um, and all sorts of government influence all over the world. And they've been pretty successful at keeping lawmakers at bay. I may be wrong about this. I have the impression that the European Union has been better at regulating some of these companies than, well, virtually anyone else. Is that true? Yes. Yeah, I would say so. They have managed to kind of fend off and prevent and curb certain types of behaviors that other other countries, other regions, other continents have not been. Well, they, I feel like everybody's able to, but they have not put, you know, kind of such forceful standards and stoppages in place. I think, you know, you see there are certain things that companies are able to do in the United States and in other places that they're not allowed to do in the EU. And also, you know, in in other countries, in addition to the EU, but the EU is such a, a big kind of cluster of nations um, that I think they get a lot of attention and kind of positive response from for taking taking more hardline actions against these kind of data practices. Can you give an example of what you can't a company can't do in Europe that it can do in the states? Yeah, so there's there are certain types of like disclosure and transparency requirements in the EU that there aren't in the United States. So in the EU there are certain like kind of participation venues for the public the public has a right to see their information to request the information not be shared certain ways. There have to be more public disclosure or disclosures to the public and more kind of affirmative consent before data can be collected and used in certain ways. And those types of restrictions and transparency requirements and participation requirements aren't really available to Americans or aren't required. Um, there, are, So in, in the U.S., we have some patchy like state laws. California has more stringent data broker laws than other states. But because it's a, a state by state patchwork and it's not, you know, a unified, united kind of policy that runs across all the countries, it's really not nearly as effective as, you know, having an entire 
entire you know chunk of of an in, of a continent saying hey you're not allowed to do this in any of these countries and you know you have to be this transparent across the board here and one obvious thing that people would want i imagine i think everywhere is is the ability to check the information on them is accurate because obviously if if it's uh, predicting whether you're not going to repay a loan or going to commit a crime or something these could have significant implications for you as an individual and if your information is wrong yeah that'd be extremely frustrating and unfair so have you ever seen an estimate of what percentage of information held on individuals is inaccurate i i mean i've seen like journalists articles and journalist reports of their estimates. And they I, I actually didn't include any of them specifically in the book because they kind of bounce all over the place and they <laughs> there's no perfect estimate. But it is widely known and widely understood that a lot of the information that is in your personal data dossier is incorrect. And that type of the, so the amount of information that's incorrect um, depends on a lot of things. And one of the big things that it depends on is how common your name is. So if your name is a very common name, chances that information about other people with the same name as you have been, you know, folded into your data dossier or conflated with your data dossier are really high. And also if, you know, you you fill out, everybody fills out all these online forms all the time. And sometimes, you know, we get fake names or we, you know, we type one number off for our address. All of that information just flows right into your data dossier. I know both Thomson Reuters and Reed Elsevier LexisNexis claim that they have, they receive information about all of us updated in real time from over 10,000 sources. So that's a lot of, <laughs> that provides a multitude of opportunities for bad information or incorrect information to make its way to your dossier. But if you're a company, f- yeah, basically making a living out of flogging information, you'd want the information to be accurate, to be you know, more useful to your customer. So are we really saying that they believe these companies that the secrecy that they currently enjoy is more important to them than getting accurate information for their customers? Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, I don't want to put words in these companies' mouth, but I think that they get such a huge volume of data that it tends to be, you know, the marketers and these risk assessment in- entities it's almost like it's it's like getting water with with some toxins in it. You know, it's not it's not the cleanest, freshest water, but it flows. It's efficient. It gets the job done. I know, like there there's there's one system that I talk about in the context of predictive policing. These law enforcement officers were using this flawed facial recognition application. It was so flawed that there were I think it was a lawsuit. There there was something that happened that prevented the law the particular law enforcement agency from being able to use it anymore. Somebody said, hey, this is violating people's civil rights. We need to put this project on hold. And while it was on hold, the law enforcement officers were told a reporter, they said, hey, we're just waiting for this technology to come back. You know, we're really hamstrung without it. We, we need, we, it made our lives so much easier. And I think you see that across the board, even knowing that the data is imperfect, it is so efficient to use these data analytics systems, right? This particular app was one where Officers could like take a take a, a picture on their phone, I think, with um, you know on the street and be able to immediately run it against every jail booking photo in you know the whole database to see if they're the same faces. And the police officers found that so 
convenient, you know, and so easy and, and such like an elegant solution to, you know, identifying people and, and seeing who might be, you know, who might have a warrant out against them or what have you, that they were really, they, they felt really constrained without it because they got used to using it. So I think it's kind of a trade-off between efficiency and perfection. And the most entities will choose the efficiency and, and risk getting it wrong some of the time. Well, it's interesting you, you, you talk about law enforcement, because one of the points you make is that information gathered through data analytics is not subject to warrants, whereas the same information, if you know, the previously, the only way to get it was to, I don't know, get access to someone's filing cabinet and go through it. You know, the police would need a lot of warrants and authority to do that. They'd have to go to judges and get permission and so on. And, and now they don't to get basically the same information. Is that right? Yeah. So there's a whole body of legal scholarship about how especially law enforcement and other government agencies like Child Protective Services in the U.S., the Internal Revenue Service, so our tax collectors, they're using these third party data products in order to avoid following warrant requirements in order to uh, avoid, you know, constitutional obligations, because there's this rule that says, that the Constitution only reply, applies to state actors, so entities that are considered part of the state. And there is an exception for third parties that um, are not state actors. And these companies are considered third parties, so they're exempt. So what, what entities do is instead of well, government entities, sorry, do is instead of collecting their own data in-house and storing it in their own files where, where they would have, you know, there, there would be a lot more statutory and constitutional obligation attached to them. Instead, they um, get, they stream. So what they do is they, you know, they sign a license with LexisNexis or one of these data brokers and they just stream personal data. They don't own it. They just kind of look at it through their subscription and they get around the warrant obligations that way. How much money is being made from this industry? <laughs> billions and billions of dollars. So I think that's one thing that I really wanted to point out is I think because these companies are, they, they, they sell themselves as like very niche, right? Elsevier is niche. It's, this is an academic journal publisher, or like Westlaw is a specialized law product, but these companies are multi-billion dollar companies. They're gargantuan and they make billions of dollars off of their government contracts and off of their data contracts. Yeah, they're, they're, they're making a lot of money. Let's look ahead and the future as we do in this series. Now, lots of new industries in the past have, you know, come into existence and it's taken time to regulate them. I can see this is a bit different because they've got big so quickly, they can probably lobby more quickly to preserve their privileges than other industries in the past have been able to do. So what's your prediction of whether effective regulation will come in? I don't know. I mean, for the majority of time that I've been researching and working on this issue, I have not been very optimistic because I've seen how other, you know, kind of tech juggernauts have avoided and prevented regulation. You know, I've seen how social media platforms have gotten away with with operating basically law free, right, restriction free. But I have seen in um, the past year or so, the idea of data privacy and data surveillance arise in the United States, at least as kind of a bipartisan issue that both sides of the aisle agree on. 
So I am a bit more hopeful that something might come of that. You know, there might be some sort of legislative or congressional move to either restrict or at least force more transparency out of these companies and what and what they're doing with our data. However, I I do also know that the these companies are really powerful lobbyists, you know, and they hire really powerful lobbying firms. And I imagine that whatever comes from at least the first round of legislation will be a bit watered down by whatever, you know, whatever those those lobbyists say. Does the current state of Twitter tell us anything about the way this may go? So I, I've been watching the Twitter, the Twitter stories unfold with great interest because I think Twitter is this really important example of what happens when we hand over our informational infrastructure to a private company, right? And we start depending so heavily on it. And then all of a sudden, the private actor decides to just, you know, blow it up or destroy it or, you know, change it, you know, in a big way. And now we all feel very disempowered. And we're all we're like, Oh, no, what are, where are we gonna get our news? Where are academics going to talk to one another? Right. And I think that, I, I, I don't know if the guy, you know, I think what will happen with the other companies depends on whether the government intervenes in the Twitter situation, because however the government reacts to what is happening right now with Twitter, I think gives us a hint to how they will react to companies like Relics and other companies that have taken over a large portion of kind of our critical information infrastructure. Just one last question to you. I remember when I first heard that um, some of these department stores could predict when a woman you know, could know when a woman was pregnant uh, really early on from, from the various data points that are out there. And I was just wondering, in your research, what's the most shocking example you've come across of how data analytics can tell uh, companies something that you really wouldn't think they'd know? <laughs> well, this is one that I thought was interesting. Turns out they, there are companies developing products to not only tag people who are addicted to heroin, other opioids, but also to predict if somebody is at risk of becoming, um, becoming addicted and what that can lead to if you're, if you're mistakenly tagged as, you know, a risk is apparently you can be denied certain pain management treatments. Uh, I guess, there was, I think it was an article written up in the markup or one of the, you know, kind of one of the technology focused publications about a woman who was unable to get pain relief that she desperately needed because one of these analytic systems had marked her as a risk of um, opioid addiction. Right. And uh, you can imagine if they were working for the other side to people who make the opioid products, it would be a very different story. Yeah, exactly. Right. And just the idea, it, it kind of is like the pregnancy or, you know, the abortion tracking concern we have now in, in the United States, especially this idea that these intimate kind of health, you know, it's not secrets, but in, intimate health information uh, can be, suddenly become fodder for making guesses about, you know, how risky you are again, you know, and, and what you might do in the future. Sarah Lambden, very interesting discussion. Thank you very much for telling us about your research. Yeah, and thanks for having me.